Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Macabre for Mortals. Sorry this episode is a bit late. Um, I had some family issues that came up at the end of last week and I needed to be present for them. This week I am going to be doing a slightly lighter topic of sleep paralysis as I do have some sort of interest into this as I don't know whether it's something to do with our psyche whether we're actually dreaming or whether we're awake. I just think it's a really interesting subject and it might be something that would interest you as listeners. My episode that is coming up this Friday is actually in my year anniversary episode since it would have been a year since I would have put out my first episode from my podcast. So I'm actually going to be looking at a subject which I find fascinating And I think I'm going to keep it a little bit of a mystery until I actually release that episode. So thank you for being so patient with me and thank you for everyone who has listened and given me feedback on the Schizophrenia series. It's been absolutely phenomenal, the the response that I've had from it. So thank you so very much. So let's dive in. So, what is sleep paralysis? Sleep paralysis is a state during waking up or falling asleep in which a person is aware but unable to move or speak. During one of these episodes, one might hallucinate by hearing, feeling, or seeing things that are not there, which often results in fear. Episodes generally last less than a couple of minutes and It may occur as a single episode or it could be recurrent. The condition may occur in those who are otherwise healthy or with people who have narcolepsy, or sometimes it can actually run in families as a result of a genetic changes. The condition can be triggered by sleep deprivation, psychological stress or abnormal sleep cycles. The underlying mechanism is believed to involve a dysfunction in the REM sleep. And sleep paralysis is commonly experienced by lucid dreamers. Some lucid dreamers use this as a method of having a lucid dream. And diagnosis is based on a person's description. Other conditions that can present similarly include narcolepsy, atonic seizure, and acapoleptic period paralysis. Treatment options for sleep paralysis have been poorly studied and it's recommended that people be rest assured that the condition isn't life-threatening and it's generally not serious. Other efforts that may be tried include sleep hygiene, cognitive behavioral therapy and antidepressants. Surprisingly, between 8 and 50% of people experience sleep paralysis at some point in their life. About 5% of people have regular episodes and males and females are affected equally. Sleep paralysis has been described throughout history as it is believed to have played a role in certain creation stories about alien abduction or other paranormal events.
signs and symptoms. The main symptom of sleep paralysis is being unable to move or speak during awakening. Imagine sounds such as humming, hissing, static, zapping and buzzing noises are reported during sleep paralysis. Other sounds such as voices, whispers and roars are also experienced. It's also been known that one may feel pressure on their chest during an episode. And these symptoms are usually accompanied by an intense emotions such as fear and panic. People have also reported sensations of being dragged out of their bed or flying, numbness, and feelings of electric tingles or vibrations running through their body. Sleep paralysis may also include hypnogogic, hypnogogic hallucinations such as supernatural creatures suffocating or terrifying them, accompanied by the feeling of pressure on one's chest and difficulty breathing. Another example of a hallucination involves a menacing shadowy figure entering one's room or lurking outside one's window while you're paralyzed. The pathophysiology of sleep paralysis has not been concretely identified, though there are several theories about its cause. The first of these stems from the understanding that sleep paralysis is parasomnia, resulting from dysfunctional overlap of the REM and waking stages of sleep. Polysomnograph studies found that individuals who experience sleep paralysis have shorter REM sleep latencies than normal people, along with shortened NREM and REM sleep cycles and fragmentation of the REM sleep cycle. Studies show and support the observation that disturbances of regular sleeping patterns can precipitate an episode of sleep paralysis because fragmentation of the REM sleep commonly occurs when sleep patterns are disrupted and has now been seen in combination with sleep paralysis. Another major theory is that the neutral functions that regulate sleep are out of balance in such a way that cause different sleep states to overlap. In this case, cholinergic sleep on neural populations are hyperactivated and the serotonergic sleep off neural populations are underactivated. As a result, the cells capable of sending signals that would allow for complete arousal from the sleep state, the serotonic neural populations, have difficulty in overcoming the signals sent by the cells that keep the brain in the sleep state. During normal, normal RAM sleep, the threshold for stimulus to cause arousal is generally elevated. Under normal conditions, Medial and vestibular nuclei, coracle, thalamic, and cerebellar sentence coordinate things such as head and eye movement and orientation in space. In individuals reporting sleep paralysis, there is almost no blocking of exogenous stimuli, which means that it is much easier for the stimulus to arouse the individual. The vestibular nuclei 
in particular has been identified as being closely related to dreaming during the REM stage of sleep. According to this hypothesis, vestibular motor disorientation, unlike hallucinations, arrive from completely endogenous sources of stimuli. The effects of sleep on neural populations cannot be counteracted. Characteristics of REM sleep are retained upon awakening. The common consequences of sleep paralysis may include headaches, muscle pains or weakness or paranoia. As the correlation with REM suggests that paralysis is not complete, use of the EOG traces show that eye movement is still possible during such episodes. However, the individual experiencing sleep paralysis is unable to sleep. Research has found a genetic component in sleep paralysis. The characteristic fragmentation of REM sleep, hypnopopic and hydrogenic hallucinations have a heritable component in other parasomnias, which lends credence to the idea that sleep paralysis is also genetic. Twin studies have shown that if one twin of a monozygote pair, identical twins, experiences sleep paralysis, that the other twin is very likely to experience it as well. The identification of a genetic component means that there is some sort of disruption of sleep function at the physiological level. Further studies need to be conducted to determine whether there is a mistake in the signaling pathway of arousal as suggested by some theories, or whether the regulation of melatonin or the neural populations themselves have been disrupted. Several types of hallucinations have been linked to the sleep paralysis. The belief that there is an intruder in the room, the presence of an incubus, and the sensation of floating. A neurological hypothesis is that in sleep paralysis, the mechanisms which usually coordinate body movement and provide information on body position become activated. And because there is no actual movement, induce a floating sensation. The intruder and incubus hallucinations highly correlate with one another and moderately correlate with third tussillation, the vestibular motor disorientation, also known as an out-of-body experience, which differs from the other two in not involving the threat-activated vigilance system. A hypervigilant state created in the midbrain may further contribute to hallucinations. More specifically, the emergency response is activated in the brain when individuals wake up paralyzed and feel vulnerable to attack. This helplessness can intensify the effects to the threat response well above the level of the typical of normal dreams, which could explain why such visions during sleep paralysis are so vivid. The threat-activated vigilance system is a protective mechanism that differentiates between dangerous situations and determines whether the fear response is appropriate. The hypervigilance response can lead to the creation of the endogenous stimuli that contribute to the perceived threat. A similar process may explain hallucinations with slight variations in which an evil presence is perceived by the subject to be attempting to suffocate them either by pressing heavily on the chest or by strangulation. 
A neurological explanation holds that this results from a combination of the threat vigilance activation system and the muscle paralysis associated with the sleep paralysis that removes voluntary control of breathing. Several features of the REM breathing patterns exacerbate the feeling of suffocation. These include shallow rapid breathing, hypercanapia, and slight blockage of the airway, which is a symptom prevalent in sleep apnea patients. According to this account, the subjects attempt to breathe deeply and find themselves unable to do so, creating the sensation of resistance which the threat-activated vigilance system interprets as an unearthly being sitting on the chest, threatening suffocation. The sensation of entrapment causes a feedback loop when the fear of suffocation increases as a result of continued helplessness, causing the subject's struggle to end the sleep paralysis episode. Sleep paralysis is mainly diagnosed via clinical interview and ruling out other potential sleep disorders that could account for the feelings of paralysis. Several measures are available to readily diagnose or screen for the recurrent isolation of sleep paralysis. Episodes of sleep paralysis can occur in the context of several medical conditions, including narcolepsy and hypoechlemia. When episodes occur independently of these conditions or substance use, it is termed isolated sleep paralysis or ISP. When ISP episodes are more frequent and cause clinically significant distress or interference, it is classified as a recurrent isolated sleep paralysis or RISP. Episodes of sleep paralysis, regardless of classification, are generally short about one to six minutes, but longer episodes have been documented. It can be difficult to differentiate between cataplexy brought on by narcolepsy and true sleep paralysis, because the two phenomena are physically indistinguishable. The best way to differentiate between the two is to note when the attacks occur most often. Narcolepsy attacks are more common when the individual is falling asleep, and the ISP and RISP attacks are more common upon awakening. Similar conditions can actually include exploding head syndrome, or EHS, a potentially frightening parasomnia, and the hallucinations are usually briefer, always loud or jarring, and there is no paralysis. A nightmare disorder, which is also REM-based parasomnia, sleep terrors, potentially frightening parasomnia, but are not REM based and there is a lack of awareness to surroundings characteristic streams during the sleep terrors. Nocturnal panic attacks. These involve a fear and acute distress, but lack paralysis and dream imagery. And also one of our favorite ones from the other week, post-traumatic stress disorder which often includes scary imagery and anxiety, but not limited to sleep-wake transitions. Prevention. Several circumstances have been identified that are associated with an increased risk of sleep paralysis, 
These include insomnia, sleep deprivation, an erratic sleep schedule, stress, and physical fatigue. It is also believed, as mentioned above, that there is a genetic component in the development of RISP because there is a high concurrent incidence of sleep paralysis in the monozygotic twins. Sleeping in the supine position has been found in an especially prominent instigator of sleep paralysis. Sleeping in the supine position is believed to make the sleeper more vulnerable to episodes of sleep paralysis because in sleeping in this position, it is not possible for the soft palate to collapse and obstruct the airway. This is a possibility regardless of whether the individual has been diagnosed with sleep apnea or not. There also may be a greater rate of microarousals while sleeping in the supine position because there is a greater amount of pressure being exerted on the lungs by gravity. The supine position means lying horizontally with your face and your torso facing up to the prone position, which is face down. While many factors can increase the risk for ISP or RISP, they can be avoided with minor lifestyle changes. Treatment. Treatment with medication starts with an education about sleep stages and the ability, inability to move muscles during REM sleep. People are usually evaluated for narcolepsy if symptoms persist. The safest treatment for sleep paralysis is for people to adopt a healthy sleeping habits. However, in more serious cases, tricholytic antidepressants or ser- selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, may be used. Despite the fact that these treatments are prescribed, There is currently no drug that has been found to completely interrupt episodes of sleep paralysis a majority of the time. As I said, there have been no large trials which have taken place which focus on the treatment of sleep paralysis, uh, but several drugs do have promise in case studies. Two trials of GHB for people with narcolepsy demonstrated reductions in sleep paralysis episodes. Pimo Vassarin has also proposed a possible candidate for future studies in treating sleep paralysis. As we know, GHB has been known as what would be known as the date rape drug. And that has been known to actually make people pass out. So I don't know whether that's really a good thing to be able to have on the market. And Pimo Vassarin is also sold under the brand name Nuplazin and is an atypical antipsychotic, which is actually used in the treatment of Parkinson's disease and also is being researched for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease for psychosis, schizophrenia, agitation, and also major depressive disorder. Some of the earliest work in treating sleep paralysis was done using cognitive behavioral therapy called CACABT. The work focuses on psychoeducation and modifying catastrophic cognitions about the sleep paralysis attack. This approach has been previously used to treat sleep paralysis in Egypt, although clinical trials are lacking. 
the first published psychosocial treatment for recurring isolated sleep paralysis was cognitive behavioral therapy for isolated sleep paralysis, CBT, ISP. It begins with self-monitoring of symptoms, cognitive reconstructing of maladaptive thoughts relevant to the ISP, and psychoeducation about the nature of sleep paralysis. Prevention techniques include ISP-specific sleep hygiene and the preparatory use of various relaxation techniques, diaphragm breathing, mindfulness, progressive muscle relaxation, and meditation. Episode disruption techniques are first practiced in session and then applied during actual attacks. Although no control trial of CBT-ISP has yet been conducted to prove its effectiveness. Epidemiology. Sleep paralysis is experienced equally in males and females. Lifetime prevalence rates derived from 35 aggregated studies indicate that approximately 8% of the general population, 28% of students, and 32% of psychiatric patients experienced at least one episode of sleep paralysis at some point in their lives. Rates of reoccurrent sleep paralysis are not well as known, but 15 to 45% of those with lifetime history of sleep paralysis may meet a diagnostic criteria for the recurrent isolated sleep paralysis. In surveys from Canada, China, England, Japan, and Nigeria, 20% to 60% of individuals reported having experienced sleep paralysis at least once in their lifetime. In general, non-whites appear to experience sleep paralysis at a higher rate than whites, but the magnitude of the difference is quite small. Approximately 36% of the general population that experiences ISP is likely to develop it between the ages of 25 and 44. An isolated sleep paralysis is commonly seen in patients that have been diagnosed with narcolepsy. Approximately 30 to 50% of people that have been diagnosed with narcolepsy have experienced sleep paralysis as an auxiliary symptom. Uh, The majority of the individuals who have experienced sleep paralysis have had sporadic episodes that occur once a month or once a year. Only 3% of individuals experience sleep paralysis that is not associated with the neuromuscular disorder have nightly episodes. And sleep paralysis is more frequent in students and psychiatric patients. Etymology. The original definition of sleep paralysis was codified by Samuel Johnson in his A Dictionary of the English Language as nightmare, a term that has evolved into our modern definition. The term was first used and dubbed by British neurologist S.A.K. Wilson in his 1928 dissertation, The Narcolepsies. Such sleep paralysis was widely considered the work of demons and more specifically incubi, which were thought to sit on the chests of sleepers. An old English name for these beings was mer or mer, from the Proto-Germanic meron, or Norse mera. Hence comes the mer in the word nightmare. The word might be 
conjugate to Greek Maron in the Odyssey and Sanskrit Mera. Although the core features of sleep paralysis, which is atonia, a clear sensorium and frequent hallucinations, appear to be universal, the ways in which they are experienced vary accordingly to time, place and culture. Over 100 terms have been identified for these such experience. Some scientists have proposed sleep paralysis as an explanation for reports of paranormal phenomena such as ghosts, alien visits, demons or demonic possession, alien abduction experiences, the night hag and shadow people haunting. According to some scientists, culture may be a major factor in shaping sleep paralysis. When sleep paralysis is interpreted through a particular cultural filter, it may take on a greater salience. For example, if sleep paralysis is feared, feared in a certain culture, this fear could lead to a conditioned fear and thus worsen the experience, in turn leading to higher rates. Consistent with this idea, high rates and long durations of immobility during sleep paralysis have been found in Egypt, where there are elaborate beliefs about sleep paralysis involving malevolent, malevolent spirit-like creatures in the jinn. Research has found that sleep paralysis is associated with a great fear and fear of impending death in 50% of sufferers in Egypt. A study comparing rates and characteristics of sleep paralysis in Egypt and Denmark found that the phenomenon is three times more common in Egypt versus Denmark. In Denmark, unlike Egypt, there are no elaborate supernatural beliefs about sleep paralysis and the experience is often interpreted as an odd physiological event with overall shorter sleep paralysis episodes and fewer people, 17%, fearing that they could die from it. The night hag is a generic name for a folklore creature found in cultures around the world and which is used to explain the phenomenon of the sleep paralysis. A common description is that a person feels a presence of a supernatural malevolent being which immobilizes the person as is standing on their chest. And this phenomenon in different countries goes by many names. In Egypt, sleep paralysis is conceptualizing as a terrifying jinn attack. So a jinn, if people don't know, is anglicized as a genie. There are supernatural creatures in early pre-Islamic Arabia and later in Islamic mythology and theology. Like humans, they are created with fritta, neither born as believers nor as unbelievers. So, and the jinn can even kill its victims. Sleep paralysis among Cambodians is known as the coast pushes you down and entails the belief dangerous visitations from deceased relatives. In different regions of Italy, there is examples of supernatural beings being associated with sleep paralysis. In the regions of Marche and Abruzzo, it is referred to as a pandafeche attack. The pandafeche usually refers to an evil witch, sometimes a ghost-like spirit or a terrifying cat-like creature that mounts on the chest of the victim and tries to haram him. The only way to avoid her is to keep a bag of sand or beans close to the bed so that the witch will stop to count how many beans or sand grains are inside it. A similar tradition is present in the Sardinian folklore. 
where the Amontador is known as a creature that mounts on people's chests during their sleep to give them nightmares, and that can change its shape according to the person's fear. In northern Italy, specifically the Tyrol area, the Trud is a witch that sits on people's chests at night, making them unable to breathe. To chase her away, people should make the sign of the cross, something that would need a great struggle in a situation of paralysis. A similar folklore is present in the Sanio area, around the city, city of Benevento, where the witch is called Gennara. In southern Italy, sleep paralysis is usually explained with the presence of a sprite standing on the person's chest. If the person manages to catch the sprite or steal his hat, in exchange for his freedom or to have his hat back, he can reveal the hiding place of a rich treasure. This sprite has different names in different regions of Italy. In Monacillo in Campanana, Monchacignino in Basilicata, Loradura in Scazamorilla in Opila, and Mazamoret in Molise. In Newfoundland, sleep paralysis is referred to as the old hag, and victims of hagging are said to be hag-ridden upon awakening. Victims report being completely conscious but being unable to be sp speak or move and report a person or animal which sits upon their chest. Despite the name, the attacker can be either male or female and some suggest cures or preventions for the old hag include sleeping with a Bible underneath a pillow, calling the sleeper's name backwards or an extreme example, sitting with a shingle or a board embedded with nails strapped to the chest. This object was called a hagboard. The old hag is well enough known in the province to be a pop culture figure appearing in films and plays, as well as crafted in objects. Various forms of magic and spiritual possession were also advanced as causes in literature. In 19th century Europe, the various of diet were thought to be responsible. For example, in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge attributes the ghost he sees to an undigestive bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of underdone potato. In a similar vein, the Household Cyclopedia of 1881 offers the following advice about nightmares. Great attention is to be paid to regularity of choice of diet. Interference of any kind is hurtful, but nothing is more productive of this disease than drinking bad wine. Of eatables, those which are most prejudicial are fat and greasy meats and pastry. Moderate exercise contributes in a superior degree to promote the digestion of food and prevent flatulence. Those, however, who aren't necessarily confined to sedentary occupation should particularly avoid applying themselves to study or bodily labor immediately after eating. Going to bed before the usual hour is a frequent cause of nightmare, as it either, as it either occasions a person to sleep too long or lie long awake in the night. Passing a whole night or part of a night without rest likewise give birth to disease as it occasions the patients on the succeeding night to sleep too soundly. 
Indulging in sleep too late in the morning is also almost certain method to bring on the paroxysm. And the more frequent it returns, the greater strength it acquires. The propensity to sleep at this time is almost irresistible. J.M. Barry, the author of Peter Pan's stories, may have had sleep paralysis. He said of himself, In my early boyhood, it was a sheet that tried to choke me in the night. He also describes several incidents in the Peter Pan stories that indicate that he was familiar with an awareness of a loss of muscle body tone whilst in a dreamlike state. For example, Manami is asleep but calls out, What was that? It's coming nearer. It is feeling your bed with its horns. It is boring into you. And when the darling children were dreaming of flying, Barry says, Nothing horrid was visible in the air, yet their progress had become slow and laboured, exactly as if they were pushing their way through hostile forces. Sometimes they hung in the air until Peter had beaten it on his fists. Barry describes many parasomnias and neurological symptoms in his books and uses them to explore the nature of consciousness from an experimental point of view. The Nightmare is a 2050 documentary that discusses the causes of sleep paralysis and is seen through intensive interviews with participants and the experiences are reenacted by professional actors. In synopsis, it proposes that such cultural phenomena such as alien abduction, the near-death experience and shadow people can in many cases be attributed to sleep paralysis. The real-life horror film debuted at the Sundance Film Festival on January 26, 2015 and premiered in theatres on June 5, 2015. My sources this week were... A Clinician's Guide to Recurrent Isolated Sleep Paralysis in the Neuropsychiatric Disease and Treatment by Sharpless et al. in 2016. Also, Isolated Sleep Paralysis Fear Prevention and Disruption in the Behavioral Sleep Medicine, which was by Sharpless in 2016. Also, Jahal in 2017, adaptation, adaptation of CBT for traumatized Egyptians, examples of culturally adapted CBT. And also Wikipedia for some of the background and socioeconomic. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Macabre for Mortals. Thank you again for your patience as I have put this out later than I obviously intended to just means this week you will be getting two episodes in concurrent to each other. As I said, I'm probably going to keep um, the subject of my year anniversary episode just a bit under wraps at the moment. I've nearly finished compiling it together and I just want to make sure that everything is perfect for it. Obviously, it is a huge deal for me to reach this milestone and I really appreciate all my listeners and thank you for everybody who has been listening to my podcast whether you're a new listener or an old listener, I honestly really appreciate it. 
If you do have any studies or if you do want me to cover any topic or you have any feedback at all, please just shoot me an email at macabreformortals at gmail.com or pop me a DM through on Instagram at macabreformortals. I hope everyone is keeping safe wherever you are in the world. And thank you for listening. Bye.